before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 101. As always, join me the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich Diaz, the Tom Brady Macro. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Keith, what's going on, buddy? You got a new shirt? I know. We uh, if, if you're on the YouTube YouTube version, right? It's the one they watch? Yeah. 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 You can see <laughs> I have a, a shirt. And what does it say, Rich? What is the it's, symbol on it? It says CBDC. And then there's a big, uh, big cross through it. It's like a no anti CBDC shirt. What does that mean? What does that mean? Say no to CBDC. Say <laughs> no to central bank digital currencies. So one of uh, one of our good friends of, of the podcast, he he listens a lot. His name is Eric out in Calgary. Eric sent uh, sent this to me. Thank you, Eric. This is a. Uh, it feels nice too. I'm like uh, Dougal from Father Ted. I haven't taken it off since since it arrived. By the way, Dougal on Father Ted, he wore his Irish uh, rugby jersey all did the my, time. Did Mrs. Icecap know what that meant? The CBDC? I'd, I'd like to say yes, but no. Oh, boy. <laughs> hey, guys. Speaking... Oh, wait a second. I'm going to hog Rich's. Rich said he has nothing. He has a haircut, and that's it today, right? <laughs> that was offline. I told you I had nothing. <laughs> But your haircut looks good. It was not for because... public consumption. <laughs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is something for Canada as well. So the World Cup of Rugby is starting All right. today, maybe, or this weekend. So it's the Rugby World Cup. Um, one of my best friends, um, my dearest friends, his name is Rod Snow. He's from Newfoundland. He's played in four Rugby World Cups. So in the Canadian rugby world, if, if anyone is in there and they, they touch it, he's a legend in, in that space. And he's played in four of them. Every time the uh, World Cup of Rugby comes along, everyone, they always connect with him again. But once again, check out his name, Rod Snow. Say Rod Snow Rugby and look at the videos of, of this guy. He played 10 years pro in, in uh, Wales as well. So uh, big guy. Canada did not qualify. For this rugby world cup no yeah. but a letdown the, i know but the top team number one rated team in the world right now new is, zealand no it's it's the irish what so, really oh i thought the, yeah. the all blacks were always are always really good no i think they're four they are good but they're probably fourth but anyway dougal from father ted is wearing his irish uh rugby jersey for the next month just like me with my central bank digital currency <laughs> shirt I want Steve. one. <laughs> How about you, Steve? I no, I, I don't have any special shirts here. Um, we've got a jam-packed episode today, though. We've got, uh, you know, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into. Uh, we had Canada jobs numbers last week, so we want to unpack some sort of tidbits out of that. We had U.S. CPI. We had Canada rental data. Uh, we got the ECB that came out with uh, another rate hike. We're going to get to all that. So we got a lot of that, but. Before we get into all of that, we actually have a special guest interview for this week's episode. Uh, it's Ben Rabideau of North Cove Advisors. Uh, for any of you that are not familiar with him, very, very active on Twitter. Uh, ben runs a research firm that is focused on 
Canadian housing and the credit cycle. Uh, I think he's got some of the best research in Canada. Um, and so for those that are there, you know, on the institution side, portfolio managers, et cetera, he's got sort of an institutional level of research service uh, that you can subscribe to. We'll have that in the, in the show notes, but he's also got, you know, he's also got sort of a, you know, I'll call it a dumbed down version for realtors and mortgage brokers. If you're in the industry, uh, he's got a research service called uh, edge analytics. Uh, I personally subscribe to it and it's, it's been awesome to sort of just have his guidance uh, to really unpack a lot of nuances of the of the data, uh, I think he's 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 a chart master. Let's put it that way. And so uh, we're going to be delighted to to have him on this week's show. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, joining the Looney Hour. The first first uh, first appearance for you. Uh, hopefully, it won't be the last. No, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for the invite. So we uh, dive through a lot of your research notes here. I guess. To kind of frame things up, I know you're you're really active on the the credit side of things. What what keeps you up at night these days? Well, I mean, I, I, there's nothing that I worry about that I, I don't think is super mainstream right now. I think we've got we're kind of in this period where interest rates have risen, but there's kind of this sense that the economy's been more resilient. Um, you know, there's been a, a bit of a cushion on the household side due to pandemic savings, and so we kind of been lulled to sleep that these rates. They hurt, but they don't. They're not really impacting the market. And I just, I feel like um, that's just a that's just premature, right? I mean, rates at these levels are just going to break things. We have a highly levered household here in Canada, um, relatively levered corporate sector. Rates at these levels, you, you roll this forward any length of time, um, it's going to start to matter. And what's interesting is, so we, we just got some balance sheet data from Stats Canada. So Rich may have seen this, but this is really fascinating. If you look at like one of the the data points that I track pretty closely is the household debt service ratio. Right, which is the share of household income that goes towards uh, principal and interest repayment on debt. Super interesting data point because it correlates well with non-performing loans at Canadian banks. If you give it a lag, it correlates with um, kind of the more discretionary purchases. Um, and uh, what we're finding is that that ratio is holding quite stable. In fact, it declined slightly last quarter. You're like, well, how is that possible, right? And and if you then take that that um, that indicator, you break it down into both the principal and the interest repayment component. It's fascinating. You've got interest costs spiking and you've got principal repayment plunging, right? So we're now at the lowest level of principal repayment. We're now below. So this is crazy. Principal repayments in Canada is now below where it was in Q2 2020 when we had all the mortgage deferrals, right? Where literally people were like, ah, well, just, the government was like, if you don't want to pay your mortgage, just don't pay it. And today we have principal repayment that's lower than that. And so, and the reason for that, of course, is these static payment variables, which is this kind of bizarre Canadian only construct that just has everybody confused. Um, but it's masking a lot of the, the potential pain. Uh, and so the headline number is relatively flat, even as the interest component is spiking. And so where that is going to matter is as we get into some heavier renewal years in 2024, 2025, as those mortgages renew, they revert back to the original amortization schedule. Uh, you're looking at a, a 40, 50, 60% increase in monthly payments. I just don't see how that doesn't end up being a, a real problem. I got a question for you on that front. <clears throat> what? So if you're the regulator, you're OSFI, you're Peter Rutledge there running OSFI. How do you juggle this? Do you, do you like, do you genuinely think that, do you think, do you think it becomes a large enough problem that 
Osview or the banks, they have to figure out some sort of way to say, okay, you know, you're technically you're supposed to get back to your original amortization schedule, but we're going to kind of tweak things a little bit, give you a little bit more leeway because I agree with you, you know, people are going to have these massive balloon payments. And if you start multiplying that, you know, I mean, what is it? you know, 20% of, of some of these banks books have amortizations growing north of 35 years right now. Yeah. North of 20% in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. So what yeah. are you, if you're a betting what man, can they what, do? What... well, so they can't solve the problem completely. What, what they can do and what they probably will do is allow them to re-extend the amortization, right? So right now it's a tricky situation because if you want to re-extend your amortization at renewal, you technically have to break your mortgage and you have to create a new mortgage. But in order to do that, you then have to stress test it. And so you've got the situation where the people who are most vulnerable and most impacted can't clear the stress test to re, to to renew to refinance their mortgage into a longer term. Now there's a pretty easy solution there. Austria just says, well, we'll just re- we'll allow them to re-extend it. Um, now I don't. Again, that's going to help with the margin. So so maybe instead of going up fifty percent, your payments go up thirty or thirty five percent. Like it's not it's not a solution, right? And then you're into other issues around how do you force the banks to provision for those, right? Because clearly that's in my mind that's a higher default risk, right? So so there's no free lunch in this. Ultimately, I think the answer is just, if rates stay at this level, it's going to be painful. This really comes down to the inflation side. Keith, I'll let you chime in here. But I mean, I'm kind of curious, Ben, we got sneaking sneak in a question here. But on the inflation side, so you look at all this, you look at the highly levered Canadian consumer. And the one thing at least I'm wondering, and I and fair enough, I've been wrong on this for for quite some time now. But I struggle to see a scenario where inflation holds up when the Canadian consumer, which is what, 65% of the economy, has really no staying power, which is, you know, they're clearly starting to delever. And so how how are you going to drive excess demand and inflationary, other than supply issues? But I'm, I'm struggling to see how you get sustained inflation if the Canadian consumers is choking out on their mortgage payments. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right in that situation. Look, what what the the situation that I'm painting is certainly one that will necessitate a response from the Bank of Canada, right? So, um, yeah, I think it will be negative for inflation. Like we will see downward pressure on inflation if you see substantial stress at the household level, right? There's no question. But you know, I'd leave it to Rich. Rich is way smarter than me. He's probably he's probably modeled all this stuff out in his extensive spreadsheets. He could speak to this better than I could. Oh God, no! Models never call me back, so I'm not a big fan of them. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank, but I will jump in there for a second. So thanks for thanks for joining us, Ben. I'm, I really appreciate your work on on Twitter, and um, I know we connected a little bit. Hopefully, more in the future. My question is, what you're outlining is sort of a scenario. Um, and forgive me if I'm getting ahead of here, but what you're outlining is a scenario is that if people just hold on tight that the Bank of Canada will see sort of disinflationary pressures and do what I think is priced into the U.S. market and start cutting sort of before the beginning of next summer, uh, thereby restarting the Ferris wheel and, um, and you know, and, and just starting this whole thing again. Um, do you do you think that they'll cave? Do, do you not, or, or do you think they've learned their lesson? Or how do you think this sort of plays out over the next like twelve to eighteen months? I, I know that's a tough question, but I'm curious. Well, look, I'll take a kick at it um, with the caveat that I, you know, certainly didn't see the magnitude of the rate hikes that that have happened. So fair um, enough. Neither did I. Neither did I. I mean, who did? Right. But but what I what I would say um, is I, I I think look, central banks are always afraid of making this the 
the last mistake. They're always fighting the last battle. Um, I'm not calling for a return to zero rates. In fact, I think even in a recessionary environment, we maybe get back down to the Bank of Canada rates with a three handle, um, which still implies that you're looking at you know, mid 4% fixed rates, right? So th to me, that's the new reality outside of a true financial crisis, um, in which case we know central banks have exactly one playbook and it's cut to zero in QE, right? Uh, there's no reason to think they'd be different this time, but um, I think we're in a fundamentally higher interest rate regime. And, and and I'll be honest, I think I think mortgage rates in the fours are enough to take a lot of steam out of this market. Right. No, well, so that clear, yeah, like, you beat that was my that was my next question. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's that was my next question. So please uh, please carry on. Well I think it's important to contextualize this. If we look at Toronto, right, home sales in Toronto are at a level right now that was last seen on a sustained basis in the 1990s. It, you could argue that it's unsustainably low. Right. And so would mortgage rates, if, if mortgage rates went back to four and a half, would we see an uptick in demand? Yeah, you would. For sure you would. There's well-qualified buyers that would come off the sidelines. Um, but I don't think that that fundamentally brings us back to this rip-roaring, you know, insane market that we've seen over the last few years. I mean, I've been making the case for, are we entering a period of, you know, no growth in, in Canadian housing? Or I mean, you know, for pockets of the market, at least for, for the next decade, right? I mean, we saw it in the '90s. Maybe, maybe the GTA goes through, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20, 20 percent correction, and then, and then just Done. kind of. We're already there, Steve. Yeah, yeah, well, we're there already, right? Um, you look at most of the metros in southern Ontario have been hit the hardest. We've still got metros that are down twenty percent from peak, right? Including some of the the suburbs around the GTA. So, I mean, that that magnitude of correction is already historic in the context of kind of the fifty years of of solid house price data that we have. Um, and I, I don't think it's it's probably not done yet. Right. I mean, if we look at what's happening in, in these markets, like it's a weird time. Right. Because you've got there's legitimately a shortage of inventory. Like you look at what's happening in the resale market. You're still sitting in inventory levels that are a little more than half of the normal levels um, going back over the last 15 years. So there, there's not a ton of inventory on the market. Right. Um, and yet we're seeing that prices and, and and sales are still significantly under pressure. Right. So. I, mean, I don't know what all that means, but I think that what we're going to see over the next few months is a substantial increase in new listings coming to market. Because there was certainly a sense for most of the past year that if people just held off, um, that interest rates would fall and everything would be all right. And I really get the sense in the people that I'm talking to on the front line that the sentiment and the psychology really broke this summer with those two back-to-back -back rate hikes. And now we're starting to see some level of capitulation, particularly among these deeply cash flow negative investors. And that's starting to to manifest itself in rising new listings, finally in an uptick in resale supply. Uh, and so I think the direction for pricing is down from here, but let's not, let's be really clear. Like this is already a, a fairly historic housing downturn in, in the Canadian context. So I, I'll just, I'll go just ahead, jump go, in go. here as well. Yeah. A couple of things um, just to sort of simplify, because some, some of our listeners, um, you know, they're, they're at a sort of a, you know, a different level than what the conversation is taking place here. But what we're hearing so far is that there are a, a lot of people with mortgages where they haven't been able to pay down principal over the last X number of months. That mortgage is coming up for renewal within, I think you said 2024 and 25 were the, were the big years, I, I believe, Ben, in, in your last report. Uh, and then when, when that comes, that's going to create stress for everyone. And what I mean by that really, it, it creates stress in the banking system. So we're looking at this, you know, it could be a, 
a stressful moment coming up. But let's just walk through a scenario where, hey, what's the best case scenario coming up? And the best case scenario is that supply is able to increase, but you know, it's not like SimCity. You just can't hit a button and it's going to go up dramatically. Um, but if we do continue with a strong economy and strong population growth and all that, or even if population growth stays flat and the economy stays strong, we're still going to get higher rates going up. So the long end of the curve should increase. The short end of the curve, uh, well, what I mean by that, long-term interest rates will go higher. So people with you know a five-year term opportunity coming up, that's going to pay more for that. You will also have variable rates. They likely won't come down because the Bank of Canada will, they won't be cutting because the economy is doing well and, and so forth. And so it, in my mind, it, we're still not any better off because it's going to become more expensive for you know the average person to either renew or to afford that house that's still going up in price because of you know the supply challenge. So give us a better outlook than that. Like how how does that not happen on the rosy side? Yes, you want the bullish scenario, right? Well, that was bullish, I thought, but <laughs> <laughs> well, look, how does it go right? I think um you, the pop it's really it's hard to overstate how significant population growth has been in Canada and how much that has driven marginal demand. And so I look, Rich and myself, and I think you know, Mike Moffat at Western and uh, Mikhail Scooter at Waterloo, I think we were like the four original gangsters on the whole non-permanent resident file, kind of banging the drum on that. Um, and just to be clear, so if you look at population growth in Canada, it was 1.2 million over the last year. That's a 3.1% growth rate. It's about six times what the US is seeing. I mean, it's massive. Um, and if that continues, you can only fight that level of growth for so long. Like, like I think, so, so the way I'm thinking about it, Keith, is like, we've got this period of time where if, if what we're seeing right now is the status quo with current population growth, the lack of new supply, you've got a period of time where interest rates are going to drive the bus, right? And it's just hard to, you just can't fight 6% rates. And so maybe that's a year, maybe that's two years. And we don't know how long that takes for that to work its way through. But eventually you're going to get into a situation where the longer term supply demand dynamics will, will begin to exert themselves. And, and you could see a scenario where it very quickly reverts back to the strong sellers market at the other side of it. Um, now, what I would say is I'm not at all a believer that population growth is going to stay anywhere near current levels, which is something we can explore if you guys want. But I think that a year from now, we will look at population growth that's at a minimum cut in half from current levels. So we will go from adding 1.2 million people to adding 600,000 or less within a year. I know that's a yeah. very out of consensus call, but I think that's like a layup right now. Walk us through that. Wait, wait, wait. So, but that, oh yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Cause that's a, that's probably a base effect thing, but that doesn't affect the supply dynamics of the housing. It, do you know what I mean? Sorry. Carol. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. It is a base effect thing. Right. And so, so this is, this is the thing. So it's first important to kind of disaggregate that population growth number. So you got 1.2 million of that. You have about 450,000 that's permanent residents. We bring in, call it half a million. We lose 50,000 people who go to Costa Rica and never come back. And so it nets out to like 450. But the big one has been non-permanent residents, which are primarily international students and temporary workers, right? And that has added 730,000 in the past year. Now, when you plot that out going back to the 1960s, we've never seen a rate of growth anywhere near that. I mean, it is absolutely off the charts. And if you look back at any prior recession, non-permanent resident cohort, not only does it drop to zero, it always goes negative in a recession. Which kind of makes sense because the, the programs by their nature are defined, they're, they're designed to flex with the, the, the needs of the labor market. 
right? And not only that, you also have a situation where Canada just inherently becomes somewhat less appealing if there's no jobs for international students after graduation. And so these, these programs are highly pro-cyclical. So if we get into a situation where the economy slows modestly, um, you will see those numbers drop to zero, right? Or negative. But let's just assume they go back to the long-term average of you know, 50 to 100,000 a year. Well, as soon as you do that, you cut, interest, you cut population growth in half. Now that doesn't, to your point, Rich, it doesn't immediately solve the problem, but I think it takes a lot of the, the wind out of the, the crazy rental market that we've seen over the last couple of years, just as an example, right? Because those non-permanent residents overwhelmingly are renters. Uh, it's created all sorts of dislocations in the rental market. It's incentivized speculation in the single family market where you can buy a home in Toronto and you can jam, you know, 15 international students in there and charge them each 500 bucks. Like this, this stuff's happening in Canada. It's crazy. And so, you know, you take, you, you cut that dynamic off at the knees and, and the population growth looks very different going forward. And I think that's where we're going. I want to jump. Rich. I want to oh, jump in front of go, Rich go, go. for a second. Yeah, go for it. Uh, share with me, Ben, what what the annual number is is usually like for the international students coming in, and just to just to add on to that, are, are they capped by numbers from Ottawa or from the provincial sector, or is it each university? As as we all know, every university needs operating funding to their operating budget from provinces to keep going. Uh, and the margins on international students are probably 5x local exactly and out of province. So how would the flow of international students slow if if it's just universities that have to make that decision? Because if they have to make the decision, they won't. They'll gladly go international all the time. So when you do roll into any of these you know, inter, uh, university towns, like I am now a, here we go, people that can't see this, it's of a... University of Waterloo dad mug. That's where Junior is right now. But you go to any of these towns, and uh, as you say, you know the the, the rental market is is through the roof Crazy. because of that growth. So answer that. Yeah. Awkward so I know number where you're going questions. with that. So the yeah. first part is how, what does it normally look like? So Stats Canada does a good job of breaking out non permanent residents as a group, but but within that is lumped temporary workers, international students, and and refugees. So it's. It's difficult from the official stats candidate to disaggregate that. Um, we can look at, for example, international student admissions. Uh, that doesn't capture the outflows. So you're only getting the people that are coming in. And I mean, it, it looks exactly like you would expect. It's literally a hockey stick. It's kind of bumping along. I don't know. I'll probably butcher the exact numbers, but call it 300,000. And in the last couple of years, it spiked up to 900,000. So, I mean, it's just an enormous boom. Now, okay, to your question, how do the feds unwind this? Um, what I'm learning is is there's a, a fairly complex web of regulations around this that, that capture both the provincial governments and the federal governments. There are things that the feds can do to significantly curtail that dynamic. So for example, they can uh, significantly increase the price of, for, for application um, they, it, for the, the, the international students. Um, they can cap the, the working hours that they can do outside of school. Like there's things that they can do to kind of disincentivize um, international students. And, but, but to me, okay, so here, here's where I think this is going, Keith. So what I'm learning is um, when you look at the colleges, I'm going to zo zoom in on Ontario for a moment. We have a number of colleges here in Ontario that have 80% of their enrollment are international students. Now what's happening is you've got publicly funded colleges that also have private public partnerships with for-profit educational institutions. And so the college rubber stamps the admission and then outsources the teaching to a for-profit institution. Now I went and pulled up the articles of incorporation on one of those 
And it's a major one that has thousands of international students in Toronto. It is an international student only campus. And two of the, the three founders are from mainland China. And, and I think what we're going to find as we dig into this, if we can get beneficial ownership of these, is I think you'll find a situation where you have, for example, senior ad administration at the, the colleges that also own an economic interest in these private public partnerships. Like, it's just a toxic dynamic. And so my point is, the, the, the incentives are misaligned. And, and I think as that comes to light, there will be tremendous pressure on the provinces and on the feds to, to curtail that. Now, let's remember, they've tripled these numbers in a couple of years. The universities and colleges were fine a couple of years ago. I mean, they weren't fine. They had some funding issues. But it's not like this is going to be catastrophic. We, we lost Laurentian University here in Ontario. It's not the end of the world if we have to lose a few colleges because they can't fund themselves without... Wouldn't it be, without, wouldn't it be awkward, though, if... We also found out some some names in Ottawa were also uh, shareholders of, of these corps. I can't corps. wait to try to figure this stuff out. <laughs> Let's let Rich is just dying to say something. What do you got, Rich? Well, I just because this is the thing. Your point about pro cyclicality on the immigration and the temporary workers thing, I think, is spot on. I think you're right on the base effects, and I think it was important to add that. But I think, you, but it, if I may, you've highlighted why I think at this time is different. Famous last words, and it is that student component. It's the student component that is not, I would argue, pro-cyclical. Uh, the, the gentleman who owns this private public private public private partnership, he is not necessarily like whether or not you study calculus one or whatever it is, that specific, you know, action and that incentive from that student to come to Canada to do that schooling and then ideally, hopefully for them, get a secure PR, in my view, is less, let's say, pro-cyclical than it has been in the past. But and if you have those numbers as high as they are, given the, sh the small inventory, it does keep that upper pressure on the rents. And that rents keep up upper pressure on inflation, right? We know it's a huge part of CPI. And so that's where I think, you know, that's, and then again, sorry, this is circular, and I'm going on and on, and I'd like to hear your view on this, which is like, why I think, again, it is different. And why I think that the Fed, you know, this idea that they will cut interest rates, um, again, next year, or what have you, I think is, is, Again, you're you're squeezed, and I think that that I mean you've articulated that student um uh that sorry the temporary employment and that, and that student visa program really really well, and I'd like you to elaborate more on that if you can. But just isn't that different? Well, potentially, but but I also think like I, I want to be clear. I'm not blaming international students. They they've been sold. A no, no, it's not good. their fault. No, right? this is, it's a remember, racket. It's a racket. It's a hundred. Well, you nailed it right there, Rich. It's a racket, and these same private public partnerships are over marketing this in other countries, especially India. Um, and, and, and they are selling false bill of goods. Now we've got international students literally sleeping under bridges in this country. Like, do you think that once that word gets back that, we're okay, that's a fair a level, point. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, if this is the actual living conditions that we're expecting international students to live in, you, you think we're still going to be admitting 900,000 in a year? Like, I don't, I mean, maybe, maybe I can't see it. Like at some point, the Canadian dream dies, right? Which brings us back to the housing file. Uh, you know, Ben, as, as of recording this, so yesterday, the, the federal government, of course, has said, hey, we've got our first participant in the uh, housing accelerator fund. It took 18 months, so not not very fast. But so you got your first, so the government is, is starting to panic, I think, with the polling. Uh, today that we're recording here, they just announced that they're going to remove GST on rental buildings, which is a huge, huge, huge. Uh, announcement. They've had a lot of... Um... That's like the first thing they've said that could actually move the needle, by the way. That's actually some smart policy that could actually move the needle on this this conversation. And first I'm curious, 
No, so you're I saying did. it took the accelerator fund 18 months to accelerate a plan to, to make <laughs> it's things better. Acceleration. It's just an observation, guys. That's uh yeah, so anyway, yeah. So well, listen, I mean okay, so here's the thing, Steve. So yeah. so they just announced that they're gonna remove HST on rental construction. I just posted a chart on Twitter showing what rental construction looks like in Canada right now. Um, and I mean so we've got What's the exact number? 130,000 purpose-built rental units under construction right now. That's a record by a, a substantial margin. Um, it's not like the development industry isn't trying to build, bring supply to market. My point is you're never going to build enough to accommodate 730,000 non-permanent residents. You don't have the manpower. You don't have the, like, you, you don't have the cranes available. Like it's, it's insanity. So uh, to me, the, the, look, this is a smart policy, but it's not going to move the needle unless they also deal with the demand side. I mean, I think that's a good point. I, I was also curious just on the supply side, if even with removing the GST and having these accelerator funds, is it going to be enough to sort of counterbalance the cyclicality of, hey, listen, cost of borrowing is up, you know, two, three X on these massive development sites, uh, your cost of construction is still very elevated. And the numbers are just incredibly hard to, to pencil. And so you're seeing a lot of developers obviously pull back. I don't know if you want to get into, you got some research on, on, on building permits, but that's kind of your forward looking indicator of, of future housing supply. Yeah. Well, this gets back to the point I made. I, I could, I could very easily envision a situation where we go from a housing downturn to snapping back to a very tight resale market on the other side of it. Right. This gets back to the point, like at different points in the cycle, different dynamics are kind of driving the bus. And right now it's clearly interest rates. And you don't have to overthink it. Interest rates, these levels just do not work. They don't pencil. Um, but you could be on this and whatever the, whatever that, that, whatever time that takes, I think we set up for a situation where the resale market is dramatically tight. If we continue with these current trends of population growth and a lack of new supply. So the concerning thing is to your point, if you look at building permits, they have been quite weak, um, especially single family. Now you have to be careful because there's a lot of, noise in that data set because you have um, big apartment units, for example, and typically those pre-sell a year before they get permits. And so the permits that you're seeing today oftentimes are reflecting pre-sale activity a year ago. So the better signal within that data is the single family component. That gives you a better indicator of a real-time demand and it's plunging, right? So there's, you roll that forward six months, we're going to continue to see a significant slowdown in construction activity. And ultimately you roll that forward a few years and it's going to be a lot, a lot less new supply, which, you know, I mean, if that coincides with a bit of a normalization monetary policy, probably Rich doesn't like that term, but if if, if rates are coming down at the same time, um, it sets up for another kind of supply crisis if nothing changes. I have one more question for you, Ben. Um, what are your, I guess, non-Canadian network people, you know, clients saying or uh, how are they reacting to this view on the Canadian marketplace that we're, we're talking about? Well, so it's interesting. I've, so I've worked with international um, clients, um, primarily you know, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, um, pensions and, um, and, and hedge funds. And I've seen like, there's a cyclicality to the interest, right? And so my experience is they kind of tend to move as a bit of a herd right? Um, when they're chasing a theme. And what's fascinating is it's it's not very much on their radar right now. I think that there's just so much happening globally. There's so much stuff, so many interesting, as you know, Akita, I mean, you live in the macro world. This, I mean, this is a fascinating time. There's so much to do 
that um, why do you want to come to Canada and try to like take a swing at a Canadian bank that's been a widowmaker trade for a decade, right? Um, and so I don't I, I don't see the level of interest that I would have expected given the stress that I see building under the surface. Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do, but the creative process hasn't always been easy. That is, until we discovered Canva. The Looney Hour uses Canva to create images for thumbnails, social media posts, and event signage. Designing custom artwork using Canva is so easy, even the boomer can do it. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format, from social media posts, videos, presentations, and websites. Ever since I found Canva for Teams, it has been easy to collaborate and design with a team, which makes the whole process so much more creative and fun. We've used Canva to collab with our marketing team to design images using pre-formatted templates, easily dragging and dropping our logo to create professional-looking media in a matter of minutes, and at a fraction of the cost. Canva for Teams is an awesome way to quickly and easily create branding and media assets for your business. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams right now. You can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash looneyhour. That's canva.me slash looneyhour for a free 45-day extended trial canva.me slash lunia you get through a bit more of that stress uh, you know you've you've flagged insolvencies as well uh i'm kind of curious to to parse through that data as well well it's it's um exactly what i post on twitter we're seeing a significant increase in um in insolvencies now you have to normalize because we're still not back on the consumer side we're not back to pre-covid levels right so we started from such an absurdly low level that the year-over-year numbers look quite stunning, but we're still not even back to kind of normal levels of insolvencies. Different on the business side, we're starting to see a lot of stress on the business side. We are back to basically decade highs for insolvencies. Now, what we are seeing though, this is very fascinating. I spoke to an insolvency trustee in Toronto just last week, and uh, he said that they just had their busiest August. So this is, okay, this is a weird thing. There's seasonality to insolvency filings, yeah. which you would not think. You'd think if you're in trouble financially, you just no, no. file when you're but they said, no, nobody ever files in December because that's Christmas time. And nobody files in July and August because they're out having fun and getting into trouble and then they deal with it later, right? And I said, that's that's crazy. But they absolutely said there's seasonality to it. Now, what's interesting is this year, August was the busiest year for insolvency filings so far this year. And that's the first time they've seen that in 25 years. And so they are getting the sense, it gets back to my point earlier where I think we saw something break this summer with those back-to-back -back rate hikes. And I think we're just starting to see it in the economic data. And I think it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah. So the problem I mean, with that though is like, sorry, I'm going to jump in. The problem with that is like, the, the, it's something I've mentioned before and, and it's, you know, it's like the, it's the, it's the Cobb Douglas function, which is like something, a very macro nerd thing to say, but basically you have the number of pop, number of people, it, it can use, be used in different contexts. But in this case, it's like your total factor productivity of each individual times the number of individuals in your economy basically make up your GDP. Okay. I'm screwing that up, but basically that's the concept. And our total factor productivity is zero in Canada. <laughs> Not quite zero, but you know, let's just say one, so times one. And then our population growth is really, really, really high. And my point is with a little bit of nominal GDP growth, it can solve and paper over a lot of things. And now what you're suggesting, Ben, is that it hasn't been enough nominal GDP growth, right? Is, and is that is that sort of what I'm trying to well, get no, just I from think, the top down? Yeah, so um, there's an element of that, right? So when you, when you look at the headline retail sales numbers, you're like, oh, it doesn't look that bad, but you adjust right. the population. It's deeply negative. We're, we're seeing, you know, 
um, uh, per capita household consumption expenditures are declining um, at the fastest rate really since they're at recessionary levels that we've only seen really in three other prior deep recessions. So on a per capita basis, you could argue we're already in recession in Canada. Um, that's the, the, the nominal GDP growth is absolutely masking some of this. But I think the other thing is um, the pandemic savings was a real thing, right? Yeah. And, and the Bank of Canada had great data on that where they showed if you break it down by income quintile, um, I'm probably going to mess up the, the numbers, but but directionally, this is correct. It's like the, the top income quintile had four months of liquid savings going into the pandemic and today has 10 months. And then it scales down and at the lowest income quintiles, there's zero, zero and it's, it's always been zero, right? But the point being that um, there's still some pandemic savings sloshing around the system. Now, what we're starting to see is that's getting worn down. So you, you, if you look at savings rate and then you adjust for mandatory pension contributions, which I don't really consider savings, like it's not like you can ask CPP for your contribution back if you run into trouble. So, so strip out mandatory pension contributions, and um, we're starting to see some downward pressure on those savings rates. And, and I think that's, um, you know, indicative of, of consumers starting to run, starting to hit a wall. And it could take a little while longer to burn through that. But, but that, that's another big factor that's kind of masked that underlying stress. Well, I like, think oh, we oh, found a new pickup line for Rich. <laughs> Cobb Douglas paradox what, what did you call it function it's Cobb douglas function uh, try that one out the next time you go wherever, wherever you go I'm going, to, I'm going to a concert tonight i'll try it out tonight um ben what's what's got you the most concerned i i mean i'm kind of thinking like of a few things which is like okay is is it is it the b lenders is it the private lenders? We know that space has been growing exponentially over the last five, 10 years. Uh, is it the pre-sale space? Uh, these people yeah, that that's speculated. It. You got it. It's the pre-sale space. If you said, what, what's the one area to watch over the next few months where we're going to get some nasty Bloomberg headlines, you give it a month and you'll have a lot of people talking about the issues in the pre-sale space. So let me give you some numbers. So we've got 80,000 condos under construction in Toronto. Um, I was talking to Jordan Skrinko, who you, yeah. you probably know you yeah. follow him on Twitter. Great, great guy, plug, super plugged plug. into pre-construction. Yeah. yeah. He's awesome. So I, I put this in, I was like, okay, you got 80,000 condos on construction. How many of them were bought by investors? And he goes, 80%. So I said, okay, let's call it 65,000 condos under construction that were bought by non-end users. So then I said, well, how many of those do you think will have issues closing, either because they can't afford the mortgage or um, the the property does not appraise, and so they effectively get a capital call to close on, the, on that, that deal? And he goes, yeah, probably half of those. So I'm like, you're talking like 30, 35,000 condos that are going to be completing in the next few years that are going to be quite distressed. Now, that's like two to three years of resale demand at current levels of demand. Um, I, I don't know if that gets absorbed easily, right? It so does, though. It does when you have 700,000 students, not half of which are coming to Toronto. This is, I think, the part that I think, you know, a lot of these companies, sorry to jump in there, but a lot of these companies will just you know, reincorporate as a multifamily residential center and sell, instead of taking a 50% haircut on these condos, they'll just take a 25% haircut or 10% or refinance with these cash flows at 95% occupancy. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's... I think that's harder than you think it is, Rich. Okay, okay. Um, what are you saying, enough. Rich? He's saying that, that these condo corporations could effectively just close as a purpose-built rental. And, yeah, it's and really hard to do. Pay the loans. I, I think okay. that's tremendous. I mean, I, I'm out of my lane here, but I just well, I think look, these... I think it's it, it, so. It, this could be absorbed, right? But if you're asking about things that are going to be interesting and and yeah, and headlines, uh, this is one that's not on Bloomberg yet. The pro you give it a month, they're probably there's enough 
distress there enough like like it's starting to hit the fan in that space um that i think you'll see an article there uh you know look who, who knows this market's been much more resilient than i think any of us would have expected so maybe that gets absorbed but that's a, man that's a lot of supply we just have not stress tested this market to any extent and it it's proving to be highly um What's sorry? Where is this? The, the the pricing is highly volatile, right? Like even in a, a low inventory world, what we're finding is the moment you add any inventory to this market, like Toronto's got like two and a half months of inventory, and the condo prices are under significant pressure. What happens if it hits three and a half or four months of inventory? That's not that's not a lot of inventory, but we're finding that it's just you know that 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 inelastic supply cuts both ways, right? And and yeah. we're finding that it's look you can find easily prices down twenty percent in that space. I find the pre-sale market to be <clears throat> very interesting. Like even like, you know, Dino Toronto is similar, Vancouver, but like people just have this element of like, they love to speculate on this like call option, which is put down 10, 15, 20%. And, but I mean, if you actually try to assign them, like once they're out of the preset presentation center, they're, they, they're like incredibly illiquid. And then once you actually close on them and try to resell them for like whatever price you paid, it, it, a lot of I think now we're starting to see there's there's no profit. Uh, but people sort of I I find that people are still going back to the well and and speculating on the presale side, which is really yeah, interesting. not so much in Toronto. Like we just had a 25 year low in pre construction sales last month, um, but but certainly in Calgary, right, which is fit in your wheelhouse, there's a lot of speculation there. But you made an interesting point, which is that. Um, a lot of these assignments are no longer money good. And the reason for that is a lot of these pre-construction condos were sold at 30 plus percent premium to resale market in Toronto, which is really the big issue in all of this. And gets back to what you were saying, Rich, like if you've penciled in certain prices on your pro forma and the banks have lent against that, uh, when it comes time to repay, like it's, it's not easy to just, there's not an easy out um, without selling those and, and repaying those development loans. But I can like, even if you have, a pre-sale assignment that's like you're going to resell it at like market value resale value i still find even those are very illiquid because the reality is is like there's you know the presentation center is closed it's been closed for two years now and people don't want to just you're asking someone to come in and buy a piece of paper they can't walk around the presentation center they don't get all the glitz and the hype and 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 the you know the developer sales team pitching them on it. It's just your hey, you want to buy this piece of paper? And most people will go, well, no, I'd rather just participate in the resale market. I need to do something that I can tangibly walk through. So I just find in general, and then like Ben, to your point, if you tap, if you add on a twenty or thirty percent uh, premium to that assignment, um, the, the, the good luck. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I don't know how it plays out, but but what I would say is we, we've never stress tested this market like this, so we'll see. You know, do you have much concern on the B side? You know, it's funny. Like I would have thought we would have seen more issues there. So you're seeing non-performing loans at equitable and home capital. They're certainly moving, right? Like they were 15 basis points a couple quarters ago. Now they're in the forties. That's not really that much given the magnitude of the renewal shock. And for, for Rich and Keith, like just to frame it for you guys, if you're renewing, let's take equitable bank. So EQB is the ticker. If you're renewing a two-year mortgage with them today, you're seeing your rates go from call it three and a half percent to seven and a half percent. I mean, that, that's immense pain. And you got to remember their non-prime book has a weighted average duration, about one and a half years. And so they're, they're, this is a weird thing in Canada. All of our non-prime loans are one and two year terms, right? So you have like risky bullet loans, you got to roll. And um, in spite of that, which I would have said, like, that's an impossible number for a lot of these borrowers. I mean, 40 basis points of of delinquencies like isn't isn't that much so I, I don't know what to say there I, I it's hard for me to imagine that you won't see more pain there but it, they've 
they've proven remarkably resilient so far, but you know, we'll, we'll see. Just time, that brings guess, us full so. circle. That brings us full circle to how you started with this, which is like, you know, a lot of us have been sort of on this debt servicing and the consumer and household purchases are going to get bitten. And it's taken, frankly, longer than I certainly thought it would. And, you know, isn't that just another sort of case where you can survive, you can roll over the bullet loan once at 7%, you can, you know, beg, borrow and steal. And maybe but doing it twice, two years at 7%, three years at 7% when you have no, you know, price appreciation to refinance or whatever. I mean, isn't that sort of what we're sort of dealing with You're here? A bang little bit? on. You're bang on. So I think there's a great, I think it was Lynn Alden that quoted uh, the, the term that she said, the area under the curve, right? And, and the idea is it's not... It, at this point, it's not really a question of how high rates go. It's how long they stay elevated. Yeah. Because right? you're absolutely right. People can float. And the one thing I hear from insolvency trustees that's consistent is they say someone will walk into their office and they're like, this person is dead in the water. They will 100% have to file. And he said, they said that person will walk out of their doors and they'll be back a year later. And they're like, how did you even make it work for a year? But Canadians are remarkably resilient and we can tread water and beg borrow steel, whatever it is. For a year or who knows how long, but 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 eventually those rates start to break things. And I think that's exactly where we're at. Can I ask one last question? Just um, so, something that the U.S. had to do deal with in their housing bubble was and in Spain and in Ireland was the issue of negative equity. Um, so effectively, if I'm going to screw this up, owing more money than the house is worth. Yep. Right. Um, is that an issue in Canada? Because I feel like it's just something I never read about or never hear about. Um, and and why or why not? Well, it's not an issue in that prices have risen so much in recent years, right? So um, it, it will be an issue going forward, especially among the insurers where they insure a, a much higher loan to value ratio. And, and interestingly, on that point, we just had word last week that one of the, the private mortgage insurers has stopped reporting the share of their book that is underwater. Uh, which is an interesting tell, right? That sounds like uh, 2008. Sounds like a gully. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but you know, there was a great Fed report that found that, because um, I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, Canada is by and large, we're a recourse nation. Uh, and so that's going to prevent a lot of people from walking away. And what, what the Fed paper found is that um, there was very little difference in the states that were I've read this paper. <laughs> and what really determined it was the level of equity and whether they had any other financial assets at play. And that's ultimately, I think, what matters. You cannot squeeze blood from a stone, right? And so recourse matters in as much as you have equity to seize. It does not matter once you're deeply negative. Um, but anyway, on that note, can I, hey, I got to tell you guys something related to Twinkies. I got a crazy story for you. <laughs> so I had a roommate in college that would used to take Twinkies and he would pan fry them with a little bit of butter so that they were like crispy on the outside and kind of like warm and gooey on the middle. I know I see. That actually sounds I pretty you, good. I, it, it was surprisingly good if you can get over the fact that you were eating a fried Twinkie. But there you go, guys. For the next one that loses a bet, try frying it before you eat it. Maybe it'll make a difference. That's actually hilarious. On that note, uh, big, big news, Ben, while you're on the show. Uh, J.M. Smucker actually acquired uh, Twinkie Twinkie Maker Hostess, uh, Hostess in a $5.6 billion deal. So wow. there you go. Well, I hope they don't change anything for you guys. It'd be a shame to lose that tradition. Fried yeah. Twinkies. Uh, ben, we want to be respectful of your time. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Hopefully, we'll have you back on. Do you guys have any parting last words, Keith, Rich? I have loads more questions, but I guess we have to go. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, we'll, no, we'll, it's okay. Thank we'll, you we'll, very ben much, on. Ben. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. I love the show. Thanks, Ben.
I thought that was a, a great conversation there with with Ben and and like I said, we'll hopefully have him on again here soon. Um, you know, one of the was that interesting. That, you know, I, I, I get to listen cool. to there's three nerds and a cool guy, so I love listening <laughs> to three of you guys. It was fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, one of the things we didn't mention on that uh, was just, you know continuation of the Canadian uh, deleveraging side. So this is from Ben's own research. Uh, the three month growth rate, three month growth rate in residential mortgage growth is running at its lowest levels since the 1990s. Um, so clearly, Canadians are starting to delever, and credit card balances are are, are I think at all time highs. So uh, we'll see the last gasp from the Canadian consumer, um, which kind of brings us to last week. We had jobs numbers in Canada uh, on the immigration side. Again, we didn't get too much into this in in our conversation with Ben, but what we're seeing right now, you know, the, the headline jobs numbers, Keith, you'll like this, you know, that everybody goes, Oh yeah, they look pretty good. You know, not so bad. Um, but it, they're actually not keeping up with immigration. Um, and so per, uh, some of RBC's own report, you, we pretty much have to add about 50,000 jobs per month to to actually keep up with levels of immigration. And right now we're averaging about 25,000. So just yeah, keep that I missed that. No, it was good. It was I mean, good. It's, you, actually, you, you caught me. But there. it's the classics. I, I mean, it's the slow boil. You know, I think right now, you know, you know, you got that frog in the water being boiled analogy happening with, with Canada and the Wait, economy. what happens to the frog? Blah. Is that a good ribbit? <laughs> 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 they die, man. They get boils and all that other stuff. But I think that's what's happening right now. Because you know, we, we, you know, that was a great conversation with Ben. Um, you know, there's a lot of energy in the conversation. But if you really want to summarize, is is that boy, there's a lot of stress out there. And what is the relief valve for that stress? Because it it does. Like I'm, I'm a firm believer, we're not going to have a normal cyclical downturn and recovery i think a downturn will will accelerate into something that's going to be pretty freaking hey. bad and we, we need to be prepped for it anecdotally i have had three conversations in the last week week and a half um just about canadian uh, households calling in saying hey this is my situation and uh i'm up you know shit's creek without a paddle and uh what do i do and it's it's basically just been my mortgage payment's gone up this amount or or my my investment condo's gone from negative cash flow 100 bucks to 900 bucks and i'm at the point where i'm looking now for options and it kind of comes home to ben's earlier point which was like people that are going into these debt insolvency firms and still managing to hang on for another year before they actually come back in and, and actually do something with their situation. I think that's what we've seen in part of the housing sector is like, you know, people saw rates going up, you know, a year ago and saying, oh, well, it's not really a problem right now. And I think just a lot of people in general with their own household finances aren't necessarily proactive and they'll let it go until it reaches a point of no return. And I think it's very, very early days, but I do think we're starting these, I'm starting to at least get on my phone um, more phone calls. And I know chatting with other brokers and people in the industry that they're getting more calls again, not an overwhelming number of calls, but the calls are increasing about people that are uh, in dire situations with their, with their mortgage situation. And and that's with this period now with no recession. I, mean, I know technically we can say how it's, we're no, in no, it now, but right. the, it's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's a slowdown. If your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. If you lose your job, 
And once people do start losing their job or jobs, because a lot of people are working more than one, or their pay gets cut back or no bonus or stuff, that's when it really gets stressed. Because right now it's just getting stressed because payments are going up on, on, on stuff. And and again, like if we get a sharp downturn in Canada, it's it's going to be one of these moments where people say, oh, yeah, we all knew it was going to happen. But as of right now, nobody is saying it's going to happen. So I just think, you know, from an investment perspective, you know, and, and I'm, you know, we're pretty, you have to be ruthless as an investment manager you have to be insensitive to feelings and all that stuff. But this is, this is one of the best setups that we've seen in a long time, you know, from an investment perspective. And that's that's where we're going. Do you guys want to talk about the uh, ECB this morning or the U.S. Yeah, your data? Fa- your favorite central banker, Keith, get into it. Yeah, there's lots of interesting things. Uh, but very quickly with the with the Europeans this morning, uh, what did we call the American hike last week? A hawkish sh- hike? No, it was hawkish the, pause. No, panic pause. BOC, no, that was the BOC. Pause. BOC was panic pause. But the Americans today a hawkish sh- hike. Hawkish sh- hike. No, You're correct. Yes, they did. The Fed's yeah, next that's week, right. Aren't they? Yeah. So this the morning, next week, the... I thought the Fed's on the twentieth. Oh, you're you're right. Yeah, that's right. You okay, uh, Boomer? Here's. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently, I'm not right. However, <laughs> the Europeans this morning. Now I sound like a European. I'm all waffling all over the place here. Uh, they did a dovish hike this morning. That's right. They, they hiked by 25 basis points. The market was sort of 50 50 on it. And um, but what they did, the reason why is dovish. And what dovish means in, in our world, everyone. Uh, it means that you're you no longer have a strong outlook for stuff. So you think growth will be weak, inflation will be weak, and therefore you may not have to raise interest rates again. So with the Europeans this morning, um, it was very weak. So they're so to be specific about it, they're uh, they see inflation slowing to two point one percent in twenty five. Um, in and they cut away. their growth forecast for next year and the year after. So again, they're they're painting the story that you know market conditions are now sufficient to bring demand down. We saw Germany, even the German government now is starting to forecast recession coming up. Um, but that that was the European story, and you know the euro currency today is getting what? What's their favorite word? M- mullered. It's getting mullered. mullered. Absolutely mullered. Isn't um, Germany already in a recession? Let's be honest. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, I would agree with that. Unemployment's uh, what, going up, and and quarterly GDP growth is negative for two quarters in a row. One one of my good friends, he's a um, he he runs money over um, in in Milan, and uh, he he shared some interesting thoughts this morning. So apparently at Jackson Hole a couple of weeks ago, um, I don't think this was broadcast if it was it didn't get leaked out very much um it, it, christine lagarde let out some pretty interesting comments and so i just want to share with you um she, she you know it says here like she stood in front of the large audience of elite central bankers are there any non-elite central bankers yeah tip macklin <laughs> macklin <laughs> so i can't say i can't say his name probably but that guy <laughs> so for all the listeners every now and then i like to set rich up for a good little one-liner and he, he pulls them off every time bites. i know he always bites all the time it's good to get him going anyway uh lagarde ahead of the ecb she casually predicted the collapse of the international financial order 
So let's say it again. How, how does <laughs> she casually predicted the collapse of the international financial order, which is the global, you know, financial system and and all this stuff. Hey, we so should get her a on couple the pod. Of, yeah, but it's a couple of things with with Lagarde. You have to appreciate. Remember, we we should you know I mean, we like the joke, of course, but we we should never really critique the heads of any of these policy groups because they they have the role in what they're doing. So whereas a lot of central bankers that you know they're they're the voice, they're the ones contributing to the policy move, stuff like that. Uh, and, and Lagarde, it's no Lagarde is not in that position. She's the mouthpiece for other groups who are very much involved. But she in, used to be head of the swamp, no? I think the swamp extends to the central bank world. To, to be so, she fair. was she was a head of the IMF. For those not uh, not aware of that, but even when she was head of the IMF, like she, you know, she oh. was quite honest about it. She said, "You know, I'm just representing, you know, a group that's making decisions and oh. stuff." But for her to come out and, and say that, it 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 does imply that the conversation is out there that. Uh, and this is what we talk about quite a bit. You know, we 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 are at this moment where you know, something will happen, and in in our view, it, it is on the debt side. And I think everything is linked together. Like the shirt, say no to central bank digital currencies. Uh, it doesn't matter how many shirts we wear, guys. It's going to come anyway, right? So, uh, but that was not with that attitude. Where's that's a, a, a count, counterpoint to Christine Lagarde predicting anything is that she has a horrible track record of predicting stuff. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, maybe. However, the point is, here she's head of you know, one of the world's premier central banks. And she's actually using that language in, in front of a, a, a big audience. And and again, it's not like, you know, they're not at the, you know, at the pub having a pint or anything. Like This is big stuff that's happening out there and i know but she also it, said that it was going to be a little bump in inflation and it would be gone in two months and she meant that as much as she means about this if not more so i'm just saying i'm just saying it's you know let's keep you know yeah but talking future's about hard to inflation predict. is is one thing talk about hey the global system is it, it could change it's two completely different stories rich like it, it's a big deal that's out there but that that's something that that really jumped out uh with with my friend who who manages money over there in in Euroland. so what else do you guys have there we got the us cpi i don't know if you guys want to chime in on that i mean i feel like it's oh man i feel like we've been talking about cpi for like 101 episodes now um i've got one quick thing which is the energy we talked about that and warned about how the you know, the energy base effects are now going the other way. I think WT, you'll be happy to know, Keith, the WTI hit 90 bucks the other day, uh, following Brent higher and higher. Um, the gasoline prices, uh, so I mean, they call it fuel oil, uh, gasoline 10%. They were up month on month, if I'm not mistaken. So that's a huge um, change, basically. Um, shelter component also continued to rise. Not much on that, but it is interesting. The headline, I think, uh, was up. So just keep an eye on that. I don't I really think the big news this morning. I mean, we had the, the American retail data. Yeah. Then we had the PPI data. Do you guys want to go into that, like loosely, without going to all the deep numbers? Because uh, yeah. it, it does done. tie into that hawkish hike that's coming just in. The richest, just the richest point. I totally agree, obviously, with the, um, you know, gasoline prices, um, you know, obviously pushing inflation higher from a base effect. And I think we're going to see the opposite on the base effect side from the rent side. So CPI reported um, 
rents being up at 7.8% year over year. Uh, but if you look at any sort of real-time data analysis, Zillow, Redfin, apartment list, um, where US, US rent growth is pretty much running at zero at the moment. Uh, and could turn. There's a lot of analysis to suggest that rent growth uh, could turn negative on a national basis uh, next month. And in fact, in ma- many major metros in the U.S., it's already happening, uh, which is kind of interesting because it's definitely the opposite of what's happening in Canada. We're still seeing rapid rent appreciation, um, which ties into our whole conversation with Ben Rabideau. So, anyways, that's the other flip side of of the U.S. CPI. So it's funny to see, like on Twitter, as you're seeing both sides, like the inflationists and the, you know, disinflationist guys arguing back and forth, you know, one talking about gas prices, one talking about shelter component uh, and how that's all going to play out over the next six months. Before you go on, just just remember, just for people to remember that there's core, which excludes energy and food and headline, which is the entire basket. Sorry. That's why there might be conflicting sort of views and Sorry, which Keith, is weird, ahead. hey? Because who eats food and drives a car? <laughs> it's the stupidest thing ever. I eat um, bugs. <laughs> <Anyway>. Hey, <laughs> eat sea bugs. The uh, uh, guys, the Canadian inflation is next Tuesday, I, I think. So uh, we'll have that next week. Um, the other item that was jumping out at me. Retail uh, CPI. We should almost have a prediction for that. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, we talked yeah. about. Bad oh, yeah. It's my CPI comment. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually yeah. pretty smart. Um, as opposed to the other comments we usually make. <laughs> what I suspect will start happening now with, with CPI data is that uh, analysts have now, like, analysts are always slow in, in, in developing the trend with estimates. So when inflation data was going up, you know, their estimates were too low. And now that inflation data is it is rolling over. Uh, you know they were slow to react to that, and now all of a sudden I think you're going to see them overestimating the lack of growth in CPI. I know I messed that up with numbers, but let's just say uh, the estimate they're estimating CPI to be three percent, and the number will be three and a half. Or if they're estimated to drop to two. Uh, it'll only fall to two and a half. I, I think that's going to start playing in. And then that will then start to kick off the story that, hey, maybe there might be more rate hikes or there won't be a rate cut. Remember, the market will always over and undershoot itself. Uh, quickly, guys, you want like with the American retail sales number this morning, uh, yeah. the, the, almost every single data point came out. It was strong. So it, it, again, these are just the headline numbers without going to the weeds. But it, it does demonstrate that the American economy, it, it's resilient. You know, that that's a cool word, uh, but it's strong. And then also the P- producer price index data was another way to measure inflation. Uh, that was also strongish do, as do well. Think, do you think deep down, like, I, I don't disagree with you, like the headline numbers are, are obviously, you know, everyone's, you know, surprising to the upside. But when you really unpack it, are you... Are you really that bullish on like the U.S. consumer? I'm just genuinely curious because it, it's interesting because you hear these things of like, you know, auto loan delinquencies hitting the highest level since the GFC uh, credit, credit card, card ba- credit card balances being carried over uh, into the next month, like the highest that we've seen since 2008. You know, like all these metrics are kind of like screaming 
Okay. Underneath the surface. And then you've got, of course, you know, the headline numbers come out and they look pretty good on the surface. Now, I just think that it, it's a lag right now. I mean, so European growth is rolling over. Canadian growth is rolling over. You know, the, the Chinese are having problems. Um, you know, if, if you, with, with the Americans, you know, they're probably one to three quarters away from starting to, you know, to show that kind of weakish growth. You, you, it, it's very difficult for one major economy which is a consumption economy to consume, you know, they need to borrow and all that stuff. Um, it, it just, it's, it, it's unlikely that the Americans will pull everyone else out of it as opposed to the opposite. So that, that's what I suspect. Um, it's where we're going with that. Speaking of China, what did they do this morning, Rich? They cut repo rates. Again, yeah. we've talked about this. They eased again. They've been. This is on. This is a path. They've cut reserve requirement ratios. They've reduced. They've reduced deposit interest rates. They've reduced repo. And rates. why are they doing they, that? Why are they doing that? To share with everyone. Um. Well, this in conjunction with some kind of government spending program is to provide liquidity and basically easy monetary policy to soften the blow of effectively a. I wouldn't say crashing, but a, a real estate um real estate sector that is under immense immense pressure. Um, you can see this in the bonds that are trading at 20 cents on the dollar in some cases. You can see this on the stocks that in some cases have gone bankrupt. I think some companies have gone bankrupt. Equities are down 75%. Um, yeah, they're, they're, that real estate sector is going to be a huge drag for a long time. And they're going to have to come up with a, a way to sort of deal with it, either a ba- through a bad bank, which happened in Europe in, in 2014 or 15, or... I don't know how else they do it, or just handing people cash or something. I don't, I don't know. Just what would they call out. the bank? What would they call it? <laughs> the Panda Bank. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they would call the bank. But, but, but for that equivalent, oh sorry, for that ahead. equivalent story in Canada, it would be like the Bank of Canada cutting rates. Um, yeah. The commercial banks are lowering uh, the cost to borrow, so mortgage rates and and everything like that. Like anything to try to get demand for credit to come back yeah you know it's like you know leading the horse to water like if, if it ain't thirsty it ain't gonna drink uh, well but, that's what china so is a real about... is a real problem that they have over there what's what's so interesting about so leading a horse to water i mean not to call you know 1.3 billion people a horse but there's definitely a, a switch in psychology there people no longer I mean, again, it's difficult for us to say sitting here in Canada to what the psychology is of a bunch of people in China. But there's, you know, if you read enough articles and you can see people have definitely soured on that financial asset as a means to save for savings or for growth or, you know, to generate some extra income or what have you, that there's definitely been a, a switch in, in that, that psychology. It hasn't happened here, I don't think, in Canada, but maybe next year. Yeah, because they're ahead of the cycle, you know, compared to us yeah, as an example. Exactly. Um, and, and by the but way, they're not leading. They're not leading the horse to water. We know. What? Who are they leading? Looking for on the. Uh, they're on the leading US. something else to the water. So the U.S. credit card balances have exceeded one trillion this year for the first time ever, and so simultaneously, for the first time in history, over fifty percent of credit card balances are being carried over from month to month. So you have to be careful though with that, right? So that is true. You can't deny it. I think 1.1 trillion, I think is the credit card number. But as a percentage of GDP, we're very, very low. I think the issue with the US um, is really the haves and the haves not have nots. 
So if you look at delinquency rates for credit cards of the top 100 banks and the bottom banks or other banks, so in America, there's 4,800 and whatever banks, um, the top 25 of them have an incredible amount of assets. And they're also the ones that serve wealthier people. Just Let's just say broad stroke. So you got the JP Morgan and Chase with the black card or American Express, or whatever it is. And so those people have very, very low delinquency rates. If you go in, there's loads and loads of regional banks in America, and those regional banks will offer credit card to, in general, it's not always true, but in general, lower income people. And that's where you're really seeing the charge-offs or write-offs, whatever they call it, and delinquency rates rise. And so you really, the chart is these jaws where you have these people who, for example, have locked in mortgage rates at 30 years. They're not default. They're not delinquent on their mortgage rates. That's not happening at all. But people who don't necessarily have a home, they're defaulting on their credit cards and their autos. And again, it's an, it's it's bifurcated. There's two groups. There's like the old people who are not doing that and young people. So the delinquency rates for autos and credit cards, it's basically all people under the age of 40, over the age of 50, like our boomer here, there are no delinquency rates. So it's 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 yeah. it's really so, split and you have to be careful. So what you're basically saying is inflation is is crushing the lower lower middle class. <laughs> Always has. Who is the central bank? Who is the guy who won a Nobel Prize? Paul Krugman. Yeah, Paul like, Krugman. Yeah. Yeah. What a jerk that guy is. Let's not give him any airtime. That's not even sorry, that's that. not even so uh, yes. someone inflation is bad. Aren't aware. Someone someone roll roll up the Paul Krugman. Quote. So he won a Nobel Prize for economics a few years back, uh, and he's you know he's the socialist mouthpiece for the New York <laughs> Times, and he just wrote a piece to say uh, deflation doesn't hurt any social economic group any more than another one. Which is I read this, I'm like, are you insane? Are you crazy? But uh, and other people agreed with with my view as well. The ivory Anyone tower there. It's an outrageous thing to say for someone of his position, to be honest. But anyways. <laughs> Speaking of outrageous, apparently in Canada now, they're, they're recommending people wear a mask again. Oh, so this is something we, uh, we talked about. And this isn't, a, you know, hey, uh, we we talked about this first last week, which which is going. But but again, this is the, the step we're going towards. Oh, so they, they floated this. You guys laughed at me last week and here it, it came out oh, right, no, right away. I, I just don't want to get cancelled. That's all. I know you were right. <laughs> well, we won't oh, get cancelled. Just... But you're again, the next step, you're going to see schools making it mandatory or strongly suggested and universities. By the way, I go into the, one of the local universities every morning to grab a coffee and a lemon loaf. A lemon loaf. <laughs> and there's a sign there, like a stand-up sign. And it used to say Masks are mandatory, and then it's, now it's like mask. It, masks are uh, recommended. recommended. Yeah. Every time I, I walk in, I always turn it around. <laughs> <laughs> turn around, drop it no away. Yeah, no one cares, right? I do that. But uh, but from an again from an economic perspective, if, if this continues the way, I don't want it to, but I can see it happening. You're going to start to see, hey, to encourage everyone to get tested again. Like in in here in Halifax, when COVID was was raging, the government uh, they didn't require it, but they strongly suggested they would really love everyone to go get tested. And my God, they were lined up, zigzagged around the blocks to get to get tested for this stuff. So down here, they're really into it, and love it. I think they're they'll do this again. 
And if you are testing positive, you have to stay home for five days or 10 days. So think now if you're an employer and you all this stuff is happening again, I'm telling you, we're headed very dangerously towards this, you know, COVID 2.0 version. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's, it's not positive, you know, for the economy. Hey, that's and... one way to get rates back down. Housing ah, market is back. Yeah. Pandemic 2.0. Tinfoil hat gang get, coming out yeah. with, with your Mexican alien now. Yeah. <laughs> They're just going to wrap up the show with the, with the alien in Mexican parliament. <laughs> get your suburban house while you can. Oh boy! And I think we know as well as what the G20 communique agreed upon there last week. Uh, what they included, though, in one of their uh, conclusions, uh, everyone is united for central bank digital currencies. Though everyone is encouraged to start building the necessary infrastructure, uh, as well as with digital IDs. So again, we are continuing to go down that path, whether people like it or dislike it or couldn't care less but it it does have a lot of economic effects on us as well there's going to be some pretty strong raging uh social reactions to this stuff i, I was just gonna up. say to kind of wrap up the show i actually think it's the social... did you say rap did someone say rap <laughs> oh no <laughs> uh the the social side of it is going to be interesting i just uh there was just scrolling through twitter today seeing some of the uh, cbc reporters tweeting about um you know, all this covid stuff like that keith talks about that's starting to flare up and everyone's freaking out again um just seeing like the ratio on some of these tweets from you read the comments and people are like just livid like attacking these reporters and like i don't know it's interesting just from a social perspective i'm not saying whatever way you lean on the mass side or no mass side um i, I truly think people have had enough but uh we'll see we'll see tensions are rising and you know you've got still high inflation lack of affordability insolvencies are rising masks are coming back oh man i think pitch pitchforks are coming out you'd, so you'd think you, they you know you almost think they need a distraction away from other uh <laughs> deteriorating events yeah the nhl hockey season like and football oh football oh, okay wait. guys uh this What's week the 49ers are in in la to play the rams so oh, uh, last week my them. score was almost dead on my prediction what was your score last week I had 37-13, and it was 37-7 wow, in, in the end. Uh, so this week, it'll be the San Francisco 49ers, 41. The LA Rams uh, will score a late touchdown to make it 13 points. So 41-13. Go Niners. Is, this, is the San Francisco Niners. 49ers, are they are the artificial Looney Hour team? Do we have? I think, th I think so. I think that's I a think good idea. I, I think like we that. should adopt them. I think um, as their yeah, Looney Hour. Okay. 49ers. Go the next Looney Hour event should be uh, <laughs> at Levi Stadium. Let, let, yeah. Let's set it up. The halftime awesome. show. What a dud that would be. That's Did you say rap? <laughs> Spon sponsored by JM Smuck Smuckers Twinkies. <laughs> That's right. I'll, uh, as always, we appreciate the support. And we'll see you next week.